Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode on Steve McQueen's Small Axe movie series on Amazon, and we have one in the works about our favorite TV shows of 2020. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky, our producer and co-host, is a lost soul in the astral plane this week, but she'll be back again next time. In her place, we're excited to have a special guest today, Chicago's own Robert Daniels. Robert is the founder of 812 Film Reviews, and you can find his work everywhere these days, from RogerEbert.com to Vulture to Polygon to the New York Times. Thanks for being with us, Robert. Thanks for having me, especially to talk about one of my favorite films. That's great. Yeah, but we're excited to dig in. With movie theaters still largely closed across the country, we're focusing on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're going to talk about two movies about characters who try to do the impossible and negotiate their way out of dying. In both cases, they have so much passion to return to their life on Earth that they essentially cheat the system. Did you ever have a dream like that? Well, yeah, I wanted to write about films for a living, and that's what I ended up doing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Ditto. Same here. You know, ever since I was 16, I wanted to be a film critic, and that's more or less exactly what happened. It's a dream come true for all of us. Mm, yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I guess, sure. sort of, so, so surely, if any of us were to die right now and find ourselves on the stairway to heaven, we might be able to run down the escalators too, right? Uh, do you think we could get a tour of heaven first? Just curious. In heaven, do you have to get up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning to make a screening of Hotel Transylvania 4? <laughs> yeah, how big are page views up there? I don't want to write a 3,000-word essay and we to have it tweeted out under an embarrassing headline. These are all heavy philosophical questions that I can't answer, other than to express confidence that film criticism is going to be just as important in the afterlife as it is down here. In the meantime, though, we have some work to do here on Earth like unpacking a pair of like-themed movies on a podcast. Tasha, what do we have on tap? The new Pixar movie Soul is about Joe Gardner, a would-be jazz pianist who's fought for his dream, but has only made it as far as becoming a music teacher at a New York middle school. On the same day, he finally catches his big break and secures a spot playing at a club show alongside a famed saxophonist. He falls down a manhole and dies. He's so determined to make the gig, however, that he refuses to let death and the afterlife keep him away from it. Joe's dilemma recalls the missing soul at the center of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's 1946 fantasy romance, A Matter of Life and Death. David Niven plays a World War II fighter pilot who falls in love with an American dispatcher right as his plane is going down. Believing this entitles him to a second chance, he arranges a trial to convince the powers that be to spare his life. So this week, we'll talk about love conquering mortality and a matter of life and death. The next week, we'll buy another Stairway to Heaven with Soul, in which our hero needs to die in order to gain important insights about being alive. Please join us after the break. Hi. 
I'm in Lancaster. Are you bailing out? Yes, Jude, I'm bailing out, but there's a catch. I've got no parachute. What do you think the next world's like? I'll know soon enough anyway. I'm signing off now, Jude. Goodbye. It's heaven, isn't it? Peter couldn't have got away with it. He was due here half an hour after me. There's been the mistake. When the records don't balance, all the alarm bells start ringing in the records office. Oh, so there have been mistakes. We'll explain your grave error to squadron leader Carter and ask him to follow you. Oh, Peter, it was a cruel joke. If it was, it was on me. I've fallen in love because of your mistake. Well, if it's a respectable place, there must be a law of appeal. But this has never been done. I call squadron leader Peter D. Carter. You claim you love her. I do love her. Would you die for her? I would, but uh, I'd rather live. This is the universe. Big, isn't it? On this wry note, so begins Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death, which opens improbably in outer space before narrowing its focus to a man and a woman who are about to fall in love. The contrast in perspective reminds me of the famous line in Casablanca, where Humphrey Bogart talks about how the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. And that line, of course, reminds me of a less famous line in The Naked Gun, where Leslie Nielsen counters, but this is our hill, and these are our beans. The argument made in A Matter of Life and Death, one that's made formally in an unprecedented jury trial in the heavens, is that Leslie Nielsen is right. The lives and loves of two people are absolutely insignificant in the vastness of the heavens, but it's also the most important possible thing, worthy of gumming up the efficiency of the afterlife with a lawsuit and a day in court. The film's particular magic is this very British combination of irony and sincerity. It gets plenty of dry jokes out of the grand absurdity of a man trying to cheat death, but it swoons along with him too. Why should the heavens deny a love so new and so pure? What does it really matter if a soul goes missing from the ledger for another few decades? After the prologue, the first sequence is the most crucial and perhaps the most masterful in the whole film. Powell and Pressburger and their actors have to convince the audience that a fighter pilot and a dispatcher who have never met each other can fall in love over an emergency call. This isn't your run-of-the-mill meet-cute. David Niven stars as squadron leader Peter David Carter, a World War II fighter pilot whose bomber is on fire and about to plunge into the English Channel. On the other end of the line is June, played by Kim Hunter, an American dispatcher who takes his distress call. Niven swiftly establishes Peter as a noble and charming figure. With his plane certain to go down, Peter ordered his surviving crew to parachute out of trouble, knowing that there wasn't another parachute left for him. His calm in the face of death impresses June, and it gives way to a flirtatious charisma that impresses her even more. Where has this doomed charmer been all my life? But fate plays a stronger hand than death. In a truly hilarious development, the notorious British fog is so thick that the powers that be simply lose track of Peter for 20 hours. And within that 20 hours, Peter just happens to meet June in the flesh, and their affection for each other is affirmed. He makes his case to Conductor 71, a sort of French afterlife representative played delightfully by Marius Goring, and he believes that the circumstances of his delayed death merit consideration. Surely heaven operates by a set of laws, and a man who lives and loves that long after he falls from a plane wouldn't seem to follow any of them. The doctor who represents Peter in the trial, played by Roger Livesay, gets the final argument. 
quote, nothing is stronger than the law in the universe, but on earth, nothing is stronger than love. The universe would seem to have jurisdiction here, but a matter of life and death is touchingly sincere about Peter and June's relationship, especially in the context of the war. Here's a man who we know has experienced loss, and we can suspect that June has seen her share of hardship, as has everyone in the fight. Love is a mercy they've earned. Let them retire to their hill of beans. Who are you? We should have met yesterday at Ofor Wano, mon cher. Unfortunately, I missed you. Well, you couldn't have missed me because I wasn't here. Now, who the... I bring you a message from Mr. Trubshaw. Bob? Bob's dead. Oh, yes, he's dead. He says, what ho? Well, that sounds like Trubshaw. But he is dead, isn't he? En effet. But how? Why? Cannon shell. And what should happen to a man who jumps from his aircraft without his parachute? How do you know? But it is I who am telling you, my friend. All right, so what sort of history does everyone have with this movie, and what did you think of it? Uh, Robert, let's start with you. Yeah, so I'd only, I think I watched it maybe for the first time three months ago or so. Powell and Pressburger had always been very big blind spots for me. I'd only seen the red shoes. Um, and so I kind of went on like a two day binge of stuff. And, uh, you know, it, the second I saw this film, I instantly fell in love with it. I love super ambitious, kooky films like this, <laughs> um, where, you know, the line between, seriousness and humor is very 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 thin if non-existent and then david niven's one of my favorite actors too and it being an almost post-war britain i think they're kind of just toward the end of the war i think 44 45 or something like that has always been my bag so yeah i mean i don't necessarily have a kind of like a you know, personal attachment to it but as kind of a, a new like devotee to uh to powell and pressburger i think it was the second film that i'd watched so it was the beginning of the binge for me and it was it was a fantastic note to begin on did it stand out as one of your favorites of the ones of, of theirs that you ended up seeing yeah it did actually mostly because of you know we'll talk about this later obviously but just the visual trickery that happens in it it going from you know this technicolor to this technically like black and white but it's like desaturized like technicolor to like this like pearly kind of black and white those kind of like visual tricks that you don't you don't often see you know i mean you don't often see that kind of like visual playfulness today and contemporary at least in you know commercial temp contemporary cinema yeah definitely tasha what about you i had never seen this before oh, watching wow. it for this podcast yeah for whatever reason it escaped me and I guess you could say, given how little little availability it has, maybe that's less surprising than it should be. But yeah, I, I think once again, I'm going to be the curmudgeon on this podcast. <laughs> there are aspects of this film that are just spectacular. I mean, the pretty much all of the afterlife stuff is so like visually ambitious and innovative. I, I love the shot where Niven is going under for surgery and like a giant paper mache eye closes over the lens kind of occluding the the overhead uh, surgical light as if it itself is like a, a giant eyeball like the film is full of like fun moments and and interesting things to see but it also just feels so artificial to me in terms of like the caricatures uh, that the, they play and in terms of the whole like devil and Daniel Webster like let's oh we're I'm just a, a simple English lawyer here but I'm gonna like present a a giant argument for the importance of Americans basically 
I don't know. The I I found the the lead up all kind of uh like overly slow and tedious. I wanted to spend a lot more time with the afterlife, like finding out what it was all about. And I just I found aspects of this movie. I just really wanted it to move along a, a lot quicker than it did. Mm, okay, uh, so I I will, I will say this. I I, I, I feel like uh, more than ever this time I noticed how much of this film uh, it does kind of slow down in the trial sequence, which is so much about the relationship between Britain and America. And if you go if you kind of explore the history of the film, a lot of its reason for existing is, is kind of like. A, uh, you know, attempt to cement what had been a difficult relationship between the two countries before the war, make sure this new alliance is going to carry on. I mean, there, there is, there is a, a not so hidden agenda in terms of public relations, uh, for this film. So I think that's, you know, and it can be even read as an allegory of Britain and America state falling in love <laughs> with one another, uh, during the war. And I, and I feel like that, that part of the film ultimately is at least interesting because I, I feel like, you know, you mentioned caricatures there. Maybe that applies a little bit there, but I mean, our three leads. Uh, come on, these are these are beautifully rendered characters. I think this has one of my favorite opening scenes of any movie ever. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, I know to talk, Scott, you kind of split it into to prelude and then and then the and the crash scene. But to me, that's all like one big zoom in on this. You know, you know, positioning it in in terms of the scale of the cosmos and and uh, it's kind of the whole movie right there in the first few minutes. Um, I, I'm, it's an absolute favorite of mine. And I, I find I'm a soft touch for this kind of era of supernatural films in general i'm like you're you're here comes mr jordan and having come wait and you know you, you know on the, on the on the ghost front i enjoy the, the the you know topper and and uh uh the bishop's wife with another david nevin film i mean there's this thing about this era of comedies slash sort of dramas sometimes that really kind of um does that right and in a way that you know doesn't really work in most any other era and this is as far as i'm concerned the best of them I, i'm I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this film What's your history with it, Keith? I, I assume that this isn't at all recent for you. Like, how long ago did you encounter this? I think I watched it during my video store days, uh, mm-hmm. although I didn't really do a full-on Pal Pressburger binge until things started to come out on, on DVD and Criterion, because that's that's how I first saw The Red Shoes and how I first saw Black Narcissus. But I think I watched this first on VHS, and then I've rewatched it a couple of times since then. I ended, back in the Dissolve days, uh, we did that feature, I don't even remember what we called it, but like where we talked to somebody and they pick a, you know, they pick a movie that you must watch or something like that, where the, the people would pick a movie right, uh, yeah. that felt everyone's achieved. And we did this with, the, um, with Matt Fraction, the, the comic book writer who, who chose <laughs> this one. So uh, we had a discussion about it then. And I don't know if I'd seen it since then, but that wasn't that terribly long ago. Typical Keith Phipps SEO content. Uh, <laughs> yes. Talking, yes. talking yes. about yes. Colin Pressburger <laughs> with, uh, with uh, Matt Fraction. Yeah, um, calculated page view grab. Uh, I mean, this is, I mean, this, you mentioned that it's kind of not that easy to find. It's not streaming anywhere now. I think it's always kind of had a weird distribution history in the U.S. because mm-hmm. it came out as a different title. I remember when it was re-released in the 80s, it was a big deal because it had been out of circulation for so long. And it's still not the easiest thing to track down. Although we watched it all, I watched it on Criterion Blu-ray, which is still in print, and, and of course, highly recommend it. Yeah, so this was new to me as well. As much as I've oh, seen wow. plenty of Powell Pressburger movies, and I think it was oh. for that reason. It was it has been released under Stairway to Heaven, and in this title, it's gone in and out of release. I don't have the Criterion edition, but I mean, I'd seen you know Black Narcissus and the Red Shoes and Colonel Blimp and you know Peeping Tom and everything else that you would want to see, I guess. But um, so this was my first time, and what struck me. I mean, many things talk to me about it, but the audaciousness of it is so remarkable. Where the film begins, you know, in the cosmos and how it hinges so much on this opening 
scene with Peter and with yeah. June. I mean, so much if has to get... Believe, like, if you don't believe you're seeing two characters fall in love, the movie yeah. doesn't work. And that's, and that's end, so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's so difficult under any circumstances, much less, you know, with, with the plane going down and there being other things to be concerned about, you know, besides a love that you really are not going to be able to pursue under most circumstances. As Fraction pointed out when I talked to him about the film, uh, that's real fire next to David Niven, which not it presents its own kind of acting challenges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Throughout the film, I mean, you know, Robert mentioned the, the change in terms of color and, and sort of a, you see what it's like compared to like a pearly black and mm-hmm. white. That's really interesting. And there's a lot of like camera work. I'm thinking like the of the ping pong scene over just this, of where the camera's kind of going back and forth. It feels like a very liberated movie in a, in a lot of ways and in, in, in both on the technical side and also on, on the tonal side uh, because you do have this sort of very wry you know british humor happening but i think that the film wouldn't work if it didn't also have a tremendous amount of sincerity and heart going for it as well and it's got so it's got both of those things and uh yeah i really really did love it but so but i, I why don't we go ahead and start at the beginning i want to start with you tasha since you're you're our one voice of semi-descent it's my job so what did you make of this relationship and were you were you persuaded by the passion between these two characters in that opening scene i was persuaded by the opening scene and the closing scene the the doomed romance of we we've only just met and i know i'll never get to know you is very convincing and niven's line like i love you you are life and i'm leaving you like that's heartbreaking that's that's Mm. a really strong sentiment the part that doesn't work for me is the part in the middle where they don't seem to make any effort whatsoever to get to know each other as people i don't think the movie knows what to do with people actually having to build a relationship. The beauty of cinematic, I've looked at you and now we're in love tropes is addictive. You know, it's it's like a shot of dopamine. It's uh, like uh, the, the pleasure of infatuation is a very strong draw. But as a narrative building block, as a narrative foundation for a story, it's always left me a little bit cold. You know, you're ingenues looking at each other in a musical and then they're in love and we're just going to assume we're going to take for granted that that's, that's important enough for everybody to die for has just always not quite worked for me in the way like a good story about two people actually getting to know each other and finding that they have anything whatsoever in common. And I just think how many films, action films in particular, end with the protagonist and the love interest kissing or falling into bed with each other. And there's just that sort of that feeling of, well, of course, this is how you would react to an incredibly stressful situation. Does this relationship have a future literally 48 hours from now? And this movie kind of asks us to believe that they would die for each other after 20 hours. And the execution of that that development at the end, I did think was very moving. But everything we see in the middle that's just sort of like languidly lying in flowers and uh, staring into each other's eyes, I, I thought it was all a little silly. I wanted to see like less lengthy conversations about brain ganglia and more of them as people in a way that convinced me that they're both people and not just romantic tropes. Do we have a retort here? Robert has been laughing this entire time. I want to hear his rebuttal. But I love brain ganglia. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love it. I mean, I do certainly, I do certainly understand that 
these are two characters where we find out nothing about them <laughs> past that <laughs> opening like sequence. And I'm actually, it's noticeable, but it's not so noticeable that it, it like destroys that middle portion, mostly because the middle portion is just like fantastical and fun and over the top yet surly at the same time. <laughs> and like, it does become languid and it does become overwrought. And as we're kind of waiting for this trial and everything to go down and stuff like that. But I think there's enough tension that gets inserted, especially with the um, with Frank Reeves character and the tension that he brings in trying to trying to diagnose what exactly is wrong with Peter. And, you know, this idea of, okay, well, is he actually mad or is this going on in his head? Is this real? And I think there's, I, I like kind of being in that supernatural element and just kind of like luxuriating in it and, and letting just the bonkers things that go, that come with that to happen and go <laughs> along with it. So it's one of those things where there's not much that makes like logical sense, but for me, the film always makes emotional sense and i was emotionally invested even when i had no reason to be when the characters gave me <laughs> no absolute reason to be i mean i i really do like the is he crazy is this really happening aspect to it and i like that the film never really blinks on it like you can get all the way to the end and just assume that it really is all a hallucination i love who's the madman here stories in general and i think that's one of the stronger elements of the film but you say you're you're not given any reason to uh to root for these people but you do anyway does the love at first sight trope generally work for you like do you generally fall for like this kind of like cinematic like rom-com style meant for each other soulmate kind of thing but i think it's well i think qualification here is it's not love at first sight they don't see each other yeah but what i'm talking about is the larger trope because i think that's telling i i don't know as much about like robert's tastes in romance in general and this is it's a trope done differently but it's still a trope so what i'm asking is like the equivalent in so many other movies that's just kind of insta love like does that generally work for you as a as a trope no, it almost never works for me. I'm a curmudgeon. <laughs> I usually I usually hate these type of films, which is funny that like I I love it. And I think the only reason I I'm really into it is because it's so audacious and so <laughs> ambitious. And uh, give me a director that is like swinging for the fences and I will go for it every single time. It is my easy bait. <laughs> One thing I would say in response to you Tosh on this relationship is that in lieu of a, of a, you know more getting to know you type of conversations, I think there's a really exciting contrast here between that languid whatever two people in love feeling and then the the urgency of what happens 28 hours when he's found and and he has to face the consequences of that or the potential consequences of that you know and he gets sick or is perceived to be very sick anyway and uh i think the contrast between those two different moods is again kind of distinctive and surprising and kind of forgives you know more conventional character development I would be down with that, I think, if the movie made a better argument for I'm in love so I can't die. Like, I feel like that's a really strong plot thread, a really strong argument, just to the effect of, like, you messed up and you gave me this opportunity to start something. You owe it to me to finish. I think I just expressed it more clearly than the movie ever does. The movie assumes constantly that we understand that, of course, being in love outweighs 
every other consideration, including falling out of a of plane into the English Channel without a parachute at night uh, and floating like however many miles to shore. But I never hear an argument for it in the entire film. It's just sort of assumed. And this seems like such an opportunity to talk about, oh, as you know, another movie that we're going to talk about tonight does to talk about kind of the, the meaning of life and the meaning of love, why it's important, why we should be convinced. And instead, we get like a 20 minute dissertation into the difference between the British and American psyche. I want this movie to be more about love than it is. I want it to be more about why this one couple should be given a chance when people die every day around the world while in love, even while having just fallen in love. Why are these two different? Like, tell me that part of the story. It's crucial to the story. And we never actually get there. Well, I would say that legally speaking, uh, <laughs> that, that, that falling, as far as uh, heaven is concerned, that falling out of a plane without a parachute, you know, making that something that you can survive is tough precedent. It's not a very good can precedent I, uh, to set. Can I interrupt you to say this is actually based on a true incident? Of, a, <laughs> yes, of, a English, of an English pilot who survived, who survived, uh, I'm not quite, pro- probably not quite as dramatic as Paul as this, but it's, it's based on an actual incident in the war where someone did survive a fall out of an airplane like this and survived. But was he in love? Well, I don't know. Possibly. Maybe, maybe that's why he's still alive. So, Keith, tell us all why Tasha's wrong. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, I think maybe getting hung up on the on the wrong things here. Okay. It, it is yes, it is about love, but it's also as as the line that you quoted is it you know your your life and I'm leaving you. I mean, I think so much of the film is right there in the color scheme of it. I mean, to make the afterlife this sort of beautiful in its way, but forbidding monochrome or or pearly uh, as the, to bring out the word we used earlier kind of place, and and to make earth look like technicolor paradise i mean it's filmed in such a way that like the everyday events of the village look look so so gorgeous and 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 full of life i mean you know not to, not to get too philosophical here but i mean part of the problem with the afterlife is it devalues life on earth you know and and i think any sort of i you know this is a sort of an idea of the afterlife and, and not to jump ahead in some ways soul is as well that i'm more comfortable with where it's like yes we there's maybe there's something but you don't see it and what really matters is what happens here. Anything that happens after that is sort of unimaginable. I mean, everyone who dies is welcome. Seems perfectly happy to go to heaven, but it is also the end of a, end of a story. And we never see what's at the end of that staircase beyond the, the trial sequence. And it's ultimately not what matters to these characters. And 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 in a broader sense, not what should matter to us watching the movie as well. It's 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 the life that we have, not the life that we might get down the line. Yep. I just want somebody to articulate everything that you just said in the movie. And again, I think it's all taken well, for granted. The, the, well, yeah, it's articulated over the 147 minutes of the film itself, I think. Um, well, know, I'm but, reminded of the Talking Heads line of heaven is a place where, where nothing ever happens. You know, it's like once you're there, I mean, there's where what are the stakes? You know, again, as you say, unimaginable, but also uh, undramatic. And I, I think there's kind of, you know, I want to kind of skip to this question then if we're talking about the afterlife. What do you think of, you know, the film's depiction of the afterlife and, and the people who kind of operate it? Because uh, to me, the image that sort of sticks out are the angel wings. You know, and just the way that whole thing is processed is so both, you know, impersonal and absurd. You know, these almost like packaged Pre, you know, uh, wings that that everyone gets 
you know, as they're headed up the uh, escalator. It's almost like, a, you know, a ski slope or something. You're, everyone's carrying their skis. Um, <laughs> just, just to correct myself, it's 104 minutes. It's a much okay. shorter movie than I Yeah. So, 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 so I'm, I'm curious then to get your impressions of that aspect of the way uh, the afterlife is treated in this movie. Oh, me? Oh, well, I, I mean, I think it's hard to actually depict the afterlife without descending into kitsch and i think you just get like a little taste of that with the wings you know it just just you know why don't we just have like a um a stock element here too i mean if you i think actual depictions of heaven and you end up with something like um uh oh, the lovely bones or something where it's like why would i go there it's really tacky yeah that, that was like that was like a trapper keeper that movie yeah yeah, the uh, the vacuum sealed wings that looked as if it came from Walmart or something like that. <laughs> but, hey, they have to turn out billions of those things. They they can't afford to make them fancy. Yeah, but I was I am curious about the legal aspects of this, um, and also just about you know maybe, maybe this is a chance to get into. Um, conductor 71 and that character because you know here is someone who you would expect to want to claim this soul that is missing from the ledger that should be placed in the afterlife that is wrongly on earth uh and yet he's openly sympathetic (laughs) to peter's cause yeah, he he yearns for the life that he knew, and and the in the, the great line about how how they're they're starved for Technicolor up there, you know, it's a <laughs> uh, it's a nice nice clever uh, meta meta touch. But I mean, you know, I, I you get the feeling that heaven has its satisfactions, but what we think of, um, you know, what we value on Earth just isn't there. I mean, no actor in this film is having more fun than Marius Goring. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything from the the just wildly inaccurate French accent. <laughs> wait, 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 what? I thought he was a Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> so the you know, the very over, you know, like on the nose, oh, I lost my head during the French Revolution, you know, pits. He's just I absolutely love his performance. And something that actually I was like thinking about, um, and we you know, we'll talk about this probably later with Soul. But I was surprised by how diverse they made heaven. Um, mm. For especially for like a film of that era, you you know they there's a shot of like black soldiers and there's a shot of Indian soldiers, and then when you know the jury comes out, it's actually you know it's somewhat representative jury. And so it was good to see kind of like a heaven that wasn't solely a white centric heaven. It's all men on the on, on the pedestals uh, leading leading up to heaven, though. Yes. <laughs> And and on the jury, but it, like even so, I I thought that the the moment where one of the jurors, one of the new American jurors, is revealed to be like a black citizen, and we kind of cut to the the black soldiers responding to that. I thought that was a nice moment of just kind of acknowledgement, I, almost like you could you could almost read their minds and what they're thinking is, well, there's like the black people have more power and uh, respect up here than they do in the world that we just got killed in. It just feels like a, a like an acknowledgement of the political times without really heavily underlining it in maybe a way that you could get away with in a British film more than you could with a, an American film of the time. I think so. And also, I, I just, you know, this is sort of a sidetrack, but I find that initial scene of everyone ascending to heaven, all, all the all the soldiers ascending to heaven, it's just like, you know, it's without putting too fine a point on it, it just really gets a sense of the, of the loss of, of the war. Just the, you know, just the, the unimaginable loss of life uh, that, that happened uh, during World War II. 
Oh, yeah. And it's played kind of for cheer and and for jokes. You know, there's the whole little uh, joke about, ah, I'll have the officer's quarters. Oh, we're all equal up here. Um, the American soldier's going for the Coca-Cola as soon as they got yeah, there. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all very light and goofy. But at the same time, you, you do realize that you're seeing like – literally an assembly line speed of people dying in this war of you know young healthy men who have just lost their lives and like they need a conveyor belt to process them because they're coming so quickly yeah that touched me too that's uh, like a really sad note in the middle of a lot of big humor and maybe that's maybe that's what the wings suggest too right i mean just like trading the uniform and the, and the gun for this set of wings where you're just you're getting equipped in a way uh that you were on on earth but now for the afterlife yeah it almost reminds me like tonally like as opposite of a t.s Eliot's the wasteland when he talks about the souls that were lost in world war one going over london bridge and you could see the masses and the number of people who were gone except obviously this is a little bit you know it's a lot more jovial yeah, I mean, but that, that's just, again one of the more interesting things about the movie, and something I wanted to ask everyone about here is the tone, because there are aspects of the film that are sobering. There are aspects of the film that are wry and and funny and and silly. Um, there are aspects of the film that are genuinely, you know, romantic. So, what would you, what do you make of the film's balance of all of these different tones? I mean, I found it to be kind of a mishmash, personally. Uh, I I liked the humor of this film. It's not really what I recognize as British humor. You know, there's not really any of the kind of dry absurdism that I associate with British humor of a later era. It's just, it's kind of more like knockabout rough humor, I guess. There's especially about the relationships between men and women and the relationships between enlisted men and officers and the relationship between the higher authority of heaven and uh, like people lower down. And then just sort of the, the really goofy ass stuff, like, uh, you know, Goring mincing about like waving his handkerchief. Which, uh, if there's any element of the film, you, you guys may have loved that performance. I, I, I don't love the, I don't love me a fop, um, particularly in a, a space where nobody else is a fop, and it's just, it's not. This is the culture of the time. It's just kind of fop out of water. But things like the American captain signing in and saying, "All right, do you have USO, USO shows here? No. All right, we'll stay." Uh, just like the little one-liners of this film, I really appreciated. I love how so much of it is Carter being. You know, dry and, and ironic, and um, even in the face of in the face, well, literally in the face of death in this movie, it seems like you know, maybe perhaps not the you know British humor is at the of the school you're thinking of, but it seems like very much a attempt to depict the best aspects of the English character and or how the England would like to see itself in in many ways. It's interesting that we don't see anybody but Niven kick against the idea of death, and for him, it's only because he's just fallen in love. Like, there's no. Like a lot of films about death, about sudden death in particular, that deal with what comes next, do the soul thing of a kind of like, I can't possibly be dead. I protest against this. This is unfair. Uh, I'm distressed. I'm unhappy. I'm scared. Like, like any number of what we think of as natural responses to death. And the fact that everybody in this movie seems to have already come to terms with it by the time they arrive in heaven, I think is a very conscious choice. Um, 
to keep this entertainment light given the era that it that was made and you know to to have people thinking about their friends and family and uh, distant more distant relations and and all of the people that they knew and possibly fought with and worked with uh going off to heaven and being okay with it 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 feels very validating in a very conscious way Though, I mean, it is kind of heaven's screw up here. It's not, you know what I mean? Like, like everybody else comes to terms with it because it just happened. You know, they just died and then they went to the afterlife. There was no lost period where they magically survived, you know, falling whatever a thousand feet from a plane. So the circumstances just immediately become special. It's, it's different. And of course, we'll talk about it with soul. It's not Peter's initiative to, you know, resist the afterlife. He's just literally just isn't, they don't, they forget about him. He's just not there. And that's a much different situation, I think. Yeah. So how do you think it fits, I guess, into the Powell Pressburger collaboration? I mean, are there there certain stylistic or storytelling touches that stand out for you? It's funny because they seem instantly their films are kind of instantly recognizable, but they're not always all that similar. You know, there's there's not. I mean, in terms of of tone, maybe more in, lo- in terms of look, but but in terms of tone, it's not particularly like uh, the Red Shoes or Black Narcissus or or I, I think it's probably closer to something like I Know Where I'm Going or a Canterbury Tale, which which are a little um, lighter than those other films. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, they don't really they're a team like no other. But you know, I, I, if you pressed on me, pressed me to name what their distinguishing characteristics were, I'd have I'd have a harder time, I think, with some other uh, directors. Giant spaces. <laughs> sure. I, okay. I, I think Robert's going to be more equipped to address this than I am because like, uh, like Scott, I mean, I've only seen Red Shoes and Black Narcissus. And I mostly, my association with them is vivid colors, really ambitious uh, cinematography, and gigantic spaces dressed hmm. in such a way as to create illusion. Like those are my primary uh, associations with them. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly less sinister than probably their their two more famous collaborations, Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, and uh, less sensual. Right? I mean, there is a swooning romance in here, but it's not at all extremely sexual in nature you know it's pretty par for the course for like you know something made in the 50s 60s or 40s i guess in this case but yeah i mean it doesn't have the wild flashes of color that you know the other two films have and yeah i think like visually it's just as captivating in its use of color and it it does have that same kind of you know keith said it you know thematically it probably wouldn't fit too much with the other other films but kind of like the spirit of like Powell and, P- and Pressburgers, um, I'm totally blanking on this thought. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it occurred to me, I blanked as well, because it occurred to me it is, it is closest in many ways to Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which yeah. also features Roger Roger Livesay and features a uh, um, love with a beautiful redhead. <laughs> but also um, beyond that, it features, um, it, it's concerned with the British character and the you know British values and what that means during wartime and how they get uh, tested. Uh, and another great movie, too. Uh, very much worth your time yeah can i also mention here uh the thief of baghdad (laughs) i mean i guess i'm not sure if i don't think that was a pressburger pressburger co-director right but it was like alexander corda production but it'd be just still kind of going back to 
uh, fantasy and effects and trying to uh, win an audience over with certain elements of of illusion and whimsy. Uh, I, I think that's kind of present here as well. So, you know, and of course, as everyone mentioned, I think there's just a boldness to the style that, you know, that, that's consistent in all of those Powell Pressburger productions. I mean, there's just so many, so much risk taking involved on every level on the, on the style on, on, on tone, um, you know, on a story here that is, that requires a lot of great leaps on the part of the audience. A lot of things that we have to be persuaded by that would seemingly be harder or possible to persuade us with. So all of that is there. And, and, uh, that's kind of, you know, it's just exciting moment to moment in a way that, that is typical of their work. Wait, was Michael Powell the Robert Zemeckis of his time? <laughs> uh, is that a horrible thing to say? No, I like Zemeckis, but I don't, I'm not sure yeah. I've seen that many similarities. Just let, let's, let's, let's just narrow the period of time we're talking about with Zemeckis. <laughs> let's go. Let's go from. Let's go from used. Car, we were to, we're to include. I want to hold your hand in, in used cars. You know that's fine if we start that early, but I don't want to go too late here. <laughs> I don't think I. I think the only film of his I haven't seen is The Magicians or The Witches. Sorry, which I just uh, I the new one. Right? I missed it. I missed yeah, it I as well. I was excited about it when it's coming out, and then I kind of forgot about it after it came out. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of the the kind of obsession with innovation in mm. in visuals, the obsession with doing more and and going bigger and creating these fantasy spaces that just kind of like look like nobody else. Like Zemeckis has produced a lot of gimcrack movies that don't necessarily have a ton of uh, narrative or aesthetic value, but he's also just been like a relentless innovator. He's obsessed with how you can push the visual envelope. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily hold him up as uh, like one of the great auteurs of our time, but I don't mean to insult Powell by making the comparison either. I, I feel like Powell does just have a, a real interest in, I mean, there's no real re narrative reason for that eyeball shot. I, mm. I picture the construction of the giant paper mache eyeball for a single shot and him justifying the cost of that. But it's lovely. It's it's bizarre. It really kind of takes you out of the reality of the situation into this magical space where Angel Fops on a giant magical staircase just seems possible. It's all sort of a fantasy space. That's right before the moment where you kind of move from – you know, sort of biological imagery to imagery images of the of the courtroom itself, right? I mean, that's 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 such a that's a wonderful moment in that movie where you kind of get the scientific and the spiritual um, merging together. Yeah, I mean, this Zemeckis thing. I mean, the problem with where the where the comparison sort of falls apart for me is Zemeckis's interest in pop culture, you know, in commercial filmmaking. I, I don't really see it that present here with. Colin Pressburger, I see just maybe that interest in pushing things on a technical or stylistic level. And even doing that, it's kind of about expression. It's about finding some way to tell the story in a striking way. I don't feel like it's, it's, they don't have that Zemeckis like interest in like advancing what can be done with the medium. I don't think that's necessarily their interest or was their interest. They're not around. But if they were, they would love Welcome to Marwan. Somebody should. Um, I guess one last question open to the floor is like, are there standout moments for you? Any uh, other standout moments um, that we should talk about? 
Uh, I think I mentioned some of my favorites already. I mean, the opening scene again, one of the all-time great openings, and I do love that 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 special effects shot I just mentioned before. But um, as as a as a dog owner, I I enjoyed the oh good, there's dogs here moment <laughs> uh, when he thinks he's in heaven when he's actually on the beach. The naked goat boy is kind of a weird touch that we never right. really get back to. Why why is there like him? Running across a naked goat boy playing the pipes in heaven before he's gotten any sense of what heaven is like sort of makes sense. It's like, oh, you know, it's it's pastoral. It's uh, at any moment I might round a corner and see a lion lying down with a lamb. It's all just very Greco-Roman fantasy here. And then he finds out he's not dead and he's in the real world. Like at some point, don't you question the naked goat boy? <laughs> <laughs> It's. I think it's like what all these Midsummer Night Dream kind of references that he sprinkle in yeah. throughout. You know, and he never really connects. It's just in the background, <laughs> and there's like no like real reason to bring Midsummer Night Dream. Like thematically, it doesn't really. It says nothing about the afterlife or anything like that. I think that's the goring character where it's like, yes, he's you know he's a dandy, but he's also like a puckish kind of character too. Mm. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. Uh, the freeze frame with the ping pong table uh, is probably my favorite. Um, mm. It's just all these visual tricks. That he's just like slapping one after the other after the other. <laughs> and it's like almost to a point, it's almost a little bit too much. And yet, you know, it just, it, I just find it captivating and enthralling <laughs> still. Wow. I had not really put together the Midsummer Night Dream like connection in there as, as anything other than something going on in the background. But uh, you're right. That does actually explain a lot about con- the Conductor 71. And it also sort of uh, gives us a little more justification for couples suddenly and instantaneously falling in love, which is a big Midsummer Night's Dream thing and really a big trope in Shakespeare in general. And also, but- it also justifies that wonderful performance, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> By Mario scoring. <laughs> it certainly, it certainly, uh, like casting him as Puck does make a lot more sense for me than casting him as a human being that's supposed to have lived on Earth at some point. No, I I actually really like that comparison. It, it kind of makes me want to go through and just generally revisit moments. I mean, there is also the end of Midsummer's Night's Dream that's, that's where it's basically, if you didn't like this story, it's okay. It was all a dream. And that is something that we're left with at the end of Matter of Life and Death is, I, well, you know, maybe this happened and maybe it didn't. You can uh, take it up either way, depending on what you prefer. I think that's all we should in the podcast. If you didn't like it, it's all a dream. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't actually do this podcast <laughs> if you didn't like it, but we did if you did. So keep that in mind. I just want to shout out the moment where uh, opposing counsel like calls them to give their lives for each other and they do. And he's like, he basically just goes, oh, crap, they're in love after all. Okay, fine, you win. <laughs> and it's just – it's it's almost a casual thing. Uh, like, yep, you've convinced me too. There's really no point in fighting it. Yep. Yeah, you know. I, I like that performance, uh, Raymond Massey. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun, even though that's probably my least, my least favorite part of the film. But uh, who did he remind you of, Tasha? I'm looking. I'm I'm talking to you as as someone who's seen Star Trek before. Uh, did, did did that did that performance remind you of anyone? Oh my gosh, are you thinking of Q? I think of Robert Picardo. It's a very Robert Picardo oh, like sure. <laughs> performance I, I, in that. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. I, he gives me a little more of a John Delancey feel, but. Okay. Uh, sure. Well, Star Trek is kind of over full of its uh, stuffed shirt characters, mm. and there are there are certainly a number here. Also, it's uh, drawn from history and extremely caricatured characters. 
well, b- before this becomes uh, a Star Trek uh, podcast, <laughs> uh, we're going to just go ahead and stop right there, and uh, we'll come back for feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. First up is a letter taking us to task a little for our resistance to the word dated to describe issues with films of the past. Keith, our chief dated resistor, do you want to take this one? Sure. Absolutely. Allison writes, hey, love your podcast and all the hosts, but I really disagree with the idea that we should not call old movies dated as a critique. I just want to explain why. I think it's actually a valuable thing to discuss. This is a podcast about movie history, right? History is all about dates. To understand history, you have to know about how the world has changed over time. Movies feel dated because the film slash the world has changed since they were made. Art changes over time, and that's good. Discussing the ways in which a film feels dated actually has a lot to tell us about the past and the present of cinema and pop culture. No movie exists in a vacuum. Hey, I recognize that (laughs) phrase. And I feel like it's counterproductive to discuss them as if they do. If we can't discuss these feelings, movies will lose their ability to both affect and reflect social change, and that would be a real shame. Also, like you can't say a movie is objectively bad or wrong because the dialogue or special effects feel dated. There's lots of very dated movies that are genuinely good films. But if it feels dated because it's racist, sexist, homophobic, etc., then yeah, it's objectively bad. Bigotry was equally wrong in every time period, man. That's just the way it is. Yeah, so I feel like I'll, – I'll, I'll dig in. I feel like I maybe have not retri- defined my terms here mm-hmm. lately because I do have to, to the use of data in both ways here but in different ways. Like I, I really get tired of like this. the special effects were dated. This looks old, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, it's, it's there, you know, even if it's not today's cutting edge technology, it was yesterday's cutting edge technology. But if it's not, if you can see the strings, it's still, it's charming. And, and, and as long as you're sinking into the illusion of the movie, it doesn't matter. Although, you know, I'm not sure when I showed my kid Clash of the Titans, and I think she was somewhat amused <laughs> by the jankiness <laughs> of the stop motion mm-hmm. uh, photography, uh, given that she's used to growing up in CGI. The other way is like, I do object to calling old films with weird attitudes dated just because for the opposite reason of what this letter assumes, which is I feel like you can just kind of wave it away and say, oh, it's dated, when I think actually you should engage the ways in which it's dated. And I think the other problem is that, yes, elements of uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera, are objectively bad. Bigotry is wrong in every time period. I also feel like you can just wave away a whole movie because of one element. And I know it's tough, but I feel like, you know, when, when you draw that line, you know, we're, we're, you have to figure out where you're going to draw that line and what you're going to throw away with it and whether or not it's better to kind of discuss what the data elements rather than just dismiss the work entirely, which I don't think uh, Allison is suggesting here. I mean, I, I, a classic example to me is Swing Time, great musical. And, uh, you know, good news, it contains an, ex- an extended tribute to the great dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson. Uh, the bad news is it's performed in blackface. <laughs> and that is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a terrific movie and, and you just have to cringe through the whole thing because it's... Uh, uh, the intent may be okay there, but the way in which it is delivered is, of course, horrific. So, you know, I'd rather draw it out and talk about it than just kind of throw away the whole movie. And that's that's kind of where I stand on that. I feel I dated as blanket dismissal, either of special effects or dismissing a whole film because of, of, of dated elements like this is uh, things I, I do not like. Did I explain that well uh, enough? I think you did okay. a good job. I mean, I think that the whole mission of this podcast is to try to, or at least part of the mission is to look at films of the past and um, contextualize them 
in some way. And, and I think what you, what you often find with with films that have problematic elements is that contemporary responses to the films were, were also mm. pointed out some of these elements that they were controversial for for these reasons um uh you know uh i think i think people think about well everyone is being too persnickety or whatever or pc now about films of the past and nobody really raised objections to about uh, about movies at the time and that's just false i mean uh, uh, you know these these things have always been under discussion and, and i think when you go back and, and and research older films and kind of see how they landed in the culture you'd be surprised by certain pockets of enlightenment on, on a lot of uh, fronts yeah Karina longworth's great series of film of episodes on on uh you must remember this about song of the south or, or a great example of that exactly i mean, people, I mean the, the attitude people, is basically like yeah but that was just basically like oh you're being too pc well no there were people saw people, this differently people, at the time people detest were, were very angry about that film from the start so what else do we have to anything, to, anything else to say about this devil's advocate on that though yeah. Regardless of like who may have dismissed Song of the South or Breakfast at Tiffany's at the time, mm-hmm. there's still a, a thousand films that we just took for granted. You know, the, the action films of the 80s where women were almost without exception, toys to be like manhandled around for their own safety and then prizes to be one at the end of the movie. People mostly took that for granted back then, you know, mm-hmm. because it was it was the culture. And like one or two reviews objecting to racist or sexist or homophobic elements back in the day. And by the way, I, I challenge you to find nearly as many people objecting to homophobic elements in earlier uh, yeah, eras that's, that's true. Oh, for sure. as, you know, as anything else they might have objected to. You'll, you'll find qu- quite the opposite in very respectable sources, uh, uh, you know, when, if, you, if you dig deeply enough. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So it, it seems to me that what Allison is arguing here is – Basically, uh, not to blanket dismiss the term itself. I, I think that the term itself is a little triggery for, for Keith with good reason. But what she's saying is that we can acknowledge that different eras produced different things. And some of those things were not great for, for various reasons, whether a narrative or technological or sociological. And I almost feel like you're arguing different things. Like Keith is basically saying, don't dismiss a movie because the special effects are old uh, mm-hmm. or don't dismiss a movie because it's got a, a bad stereotype in it. Whereas what she's saying is acknowledge these things. It, it honestly sounds to me like you're arguing in favor of the same thing. Yeah, I think we're both anti-dismissal fundamentally and then the, the terminology is where we're getting hung up on. So I think I think Alice and I are also ultimately on the same page here. Just uh, uh, I may have conveyed my aversion to that particular word uh, in, in a way that did not uh, capture the fullness of my feelings. Yeah, Robert, I'm, I'm curious for your take on just dated as as a term, as a concept. This is something we've brought up a lot because Keith has really strong feelings about it. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe we're tired after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's really relevant that uh, that people are writing in about it. But I, I don't know. I mean, it, do you think it's a useful term? And if it is a useful term, how should it be used in your eyes? Um, I don't like the term dated either, probably because like they're – it almost inherently creates this temporal like demarcation of like well things were one way right here and then they were a different way here and you know almost like you know we're in a you know a post-racial era you know kind of thing (laughs) um and yes we should you know confront the worst aspects of or the worser aspects of of pieces of art but yeah i mean i think sometimes like especially with race right we find that 
there are obviously you know very big examples or egregious examples of racism in film, whether it's you know Birth of a Nation or Songs of the South or something like that. However, I think for the most part, when you, when you talk about race in film, we we talk about how race isn't fully confronted or racism or you know, a narrative is racist in itself, right? We see that these things are kind of cyclical. We just kind of saw that with Wonder Woman with regards to uh, to, to meta stereotypes. And so, yeah, I, I think when we call things dated, it almost elevates us like, oh, you know, modern audience is like, oh, look at this, hardy har har. You know, how, how did they not <laughs> see that they were completely in the wrong? You know, when in, when in actuality, you know, 10 years from now, I mean, not even 10 years from now, where, like I said, Wonder Woman, it took a few days. <laughs> <laughs> we find that we're not very enlightened and that, you know, that there is a, a you know, that was then, this is now, you know, kind of demarcations. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a great way to put that, it. That's, it really that's, is. that's the other thing. It's like it, 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 it makes us think that we've figured it all out when we definitely have not. Yeah, and it, it, I think it, it, it's a word that allows for disengagement and for incuriosity and all of the things that we, I think, try to fight against on the, the show and, and as uh, film critics generally. So next up uh, is a letter about our recent pairing of Wolfwalkers and The Secret of Roan Inish, uh, particularly our discussion of colonialism in those films. Tasha? So Eric writes, I really enjoyed the discussions on Rowan Inish and Wolfwalkers, almost as much as I enjoyed the movie Wolfwalkers, which might be my favorite of the year. But after watching it, I had a thought I can't get out of my head, and I'd like you to tell me if I'm onto something or overreacting. Keith briefly touched on colonialism, but I want to tie that more explicitly to the protagonists, which highlights a huge difference in the films. The titular Rowan Inish is the ancestral home of Fiona's family. Thanks to her hard work, the family eventually returns to the island, making the story about a colonized people reclaiming what once belonged to them. In Wolfwalkers, Robin is not Irish, but English, and she has trouble fitting in with the other children for that reason. Her family belongs to the colonizers, that is, until her encounter with the land's nature causes her and her father to be united with it. They then find themselves at odds with their own people. I can't help but read this as a going native story. That type of story seems much maligned nowadays, perhaps because it's hard to separate it from a foreign savior story, or perhaps simply because we've gotten better at spotting when it's handled insensitively. So is this anything? Does Wolfwalkers better handle the going native trope because the protagonist is a child? Because the studio that made it is Irish and not English? Or is Wolfwalker actually Avatar for kids? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that is a brutal final question. Uh, this, this all seems like a, a very uh, mild and abstract question um, until you bring Avatar into it. And then I kind of go, oh, oh, but wait. Yeah, there is kind of an element of that, isn't there? Well, I think the letter might be onto something in, in that, that Wolfwalkers is obviously from an Irish perspective and it's not that, that I think that kind of comes through, uh, even, even with the idea of a, of an English protagonist, you know, going native, which I think it is that type of story, but I, I doesn't, to me, it doesn't touch off the sort of problematic elements of that story. We'll talk about that when Dune comes out later this year. <laughs> Uh, on streaming <laughs> or how is that coming out <laughs> well probably not later this year because we're, we're recording this on uh, december 30th oh, so uh, right. they're, oh, they're really running out of time on that one and i i don't know i mean uh, to me it is a it is a pretty damning accusation because you can make the argument uh, that robin comes along and does irish shapeshifter better than the actual irish shapeshifters who one of whom has gotten captured and one of whom has been stymied and that is, that's an element that I think 
people are just going to be drawn back to in narratives over and over and over. You know, the, the outsider comes in, realizes that the situation was not what they thought it was from the outside and then helps fix the situation. I feel like the part of the saving grace here is that it is, you know, an, an Irish story and an Irish inflected story. And part of it is that Robin doesn't exactly single-handedly save the day. Uh, she, she helps basically the, the Irish owners of the woods and their wolves, um, kind of get over a, a hump by standing in between them and uh, uh, primarily her father, but her father and, uh, his boss, who is another uh, English muckety muck. And it's, it, it gets very complicated because it also, this gets into all kinds of the civil rights elements of, like whose responsibility is changing the system? Is it the people who are being oppressed by the problems in the system or is it the people who are benefiting from the system and have to take responsibility for help shifting it? Like there have been really convincing arguments over the decades for, for both sides of that story. So I feel like you can equally say in this circumstance that, you know, Maeve has her responsibility to fight back, but that Robin has a responsibility to help. And what makes it important is that they they both work together. They both have very important parts to play in the story. It doesn't go to kind of an avatar place of like the British character coming in and being so much better at being a wolf than anybody else has ever been. Uh, that she, you know, tames the wilds that were never tamed and defeats the, the villains that were never defeated and so on and so forth. Like Avatar put it all in the hands of the foreign outsider. And that, that I think is where you kind of cross over into it being a problem. All right, that was a good letter. Do you, but incidentally, Robert, do you, do you see Wolf Walkers? Are you a fan? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm a big fan of Wolf Walkers, and yeah, the, <laughs> the very loaded Avatar question. <laughs> I definitely didn't see, you know, as as much of like that element of like the outsider coming in and 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 helping the you know or being the the thing that saves the oppressed as much. Um, I think that both those characters are pretty active. You know, and you know, once once the 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 person who's being oppressed becomes like the passive character, then you start kind of going into a really murky territory of okay, is is this avatar? But I don't, not sure it gets there. I'm not sure it crosses over to that at all. Yeah, interesting letter though, uh, and of course we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response in a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at another story of heavenly justice and earthly delights with Soul, the new Pixar animated movie. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow, find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going to see how much of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven we can play before getting a cease and desist order.